Today's passage is Mark chapter 11 from verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 12. It should be on the board as well. So Mark eleven twenty-seven, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another and him they killed and so with many others some they beat and some they killed he has still one other a beloved son finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son but those tenants said to one another this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard what will the owner of the vineyard do He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, thanks to those who replied. Very good to see you all. Uh, My name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership uh, team here at Hebron, uh, if we haven't met before. And it is really great to have you with us. Uh, A number of folks, I think, visiting or or back visiting, haven't been away for a number of years. It is particularly good to to see you again. And for folks for whom this is the first time with us, I do hope you feel very welcome uh, over the course of your morning here. We are going to spend our next few minutes thinking about the passage Tom has just read for us. Thank you to Tom uh, for reading. Um, But before we do that, let me pray for us uh, and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. The psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and for its power. The same power that spoke the heavens into existence. We pray now that that power would please be at work by your Holy Spirit in each one of us here as we read and think on it together. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, some of you might know that uh, before training to be a pastor, I was a litigator, a court lawyer in Edinburgh. 
And uh, a few years ago now, I was in Parliament Hall, uh, which is now effectively an enormous waiting room in the Court of Session in Edinburgh. And I was waiting for one of my cases to call. And in the hall, um, there was a group of around 30 or so people on the far side of the room, and they were all waiting together for their joint case to call. And I had some time to kill, so the advocate, who was going to be appearing in my case, decided to explain to me uh, discreetly what their case was about. It was all about trespassing, he told me. Uh, The group had been living on someone else's property, and uh, the owner of the land wanted to evict them. That itself wasn't all that unusual, but what was quite unusual was their defense to the proceedings. They were going to use what's called the free man of the land defense. The free man of the land defense effectively argues that everyone is free, free to live and to do as they please, and that someone is only bound by the laws of the land they live in, the law of Scotland in this instance, if they agree to be bound by those laws. And as this group hadn't agreed to be bound by Scots law or on trespassing or on the law of property, went their argument, well, they weren't bound by it. They didn't need to worry about what the law said because it didn't apply to them. As the morning unfolded, their case called before ours did, and so the the troop of folks made their way into the courtroom before us, and word got back to us that their hearing became a bit of a circus, because the free man of the land defense meant that not only did they think the law didn't apply to them, they also didn't accept the judge's right to give a ruling on the case in any event. And so this group of 30 or so people piled into the courtroom and effectively put their fingers in their ears for the duration of the hearing. They denied the judge's right to give any ruling on the case at all. Who gave him the right to give a ruling? After all, we certainly didn't. Now, as I mentioned, that kind of defense is quite unusual in a civil claim. And yet this morning, we're going to see that it's actually one of the oldest defenses in the book. Only it's less often spoken by a quirky group to a judge in a civil court action than it is by every human heart to the judge who made and who rules the world. What gives you the right, God, to judge me? Now, we're in the middle of a series in Mark's account of Jesus' life on Sunday mornings here at Hebron. And last week, we read about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. And it was made quite clear to us that his arrival was that of a coming king, a long-awaited king. He rode in on a colt, on a donkey, just as God had promised would happen. He was greeted with palm branches before him and the cheering crowds announcing his arrival. But not only did he come as king, he came to as judge. He entered the temple, the the heart of religious life in Jerusalem, and he flipped tables over and he threw chairs around, not as an act of mindless vandalism. He was making a point. His point was that whilst things looked rosy, In the temple, whilst it might look on the surface like people were devoted to God and serving Him, well, in reality, people weren't all that fussed with what God had to say at all. 
And as a result, Jesus the judge issued his ruling on the temple and on the people who worshipped there. And that ruling was damning. Quite literally, in fact, damning. Now, all of that ought to have been pretty sobering for the people who were there. It should have provoked, at the very least, a heartfelt, thoughtful response. But instead, as we see this morning, the response of the people was to invoke the free man of the land defense. Just notice that with me. Mark chapter 11, verse 28. By what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? What gives you the right to judge us and our temple anyway, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Now, whilst that might still feel quite remote from our experience, this mindset, this heart set is live and well in our culture today. And in fact, in many of us today, only for us, the question is not so much what gives Jesus the right to judge the temple. Though the default question for us in our culture and us in our own lives is what gives Jesus the right to judge anyone, much less us. And let me just say that listening to Jesus answer that question this morning in Mark's gospel and responding to his answer, well, it will shape not only your life, but also your eternity. Let's think about that together under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Johan. Thank you. Who gave you the right, Jesus? Chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. Now, when we first read this exchange, Jesus' exchange with the religious leaders at the end of Mark 11 might seem a bit awkward. I wonder if you thought that too. The priests and the scribes and the elders ask Jesus a question, verse 27. Jesus answers it by asking them a question, verse 30. They go away and have a a bit of a think for a while before kind of fluffing their answer in verse 33, at which point Jesus tells them he won't be answering their question after all. It's hard to work out what's actually achieved through the exchange, isn't it? I read a book this week that suggested the whole point of the exchange is simply to show how clever Jesus was at avoiding people's traps and at setting traps himself. But that misses the point. See, the leaders asked Jesus a question about his authority and just notice what he actually asks them in return. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, that isn't a politician's answer. He isn't being evasive, changing the subject. There is a reason Jesus drops John the Baptist into the mix in his response. Now, a year or two ago, a big news corporation in America carried out an investigation into online marketing. And they found that tens of thousands of product reviews on massive online marketplaces like Amazon and and Facebook and Google had been faked. Uh, the, The corporation dug a bit deeper and they found a number of black market groups who were willing to provide hundreds of faked positive reviews for a company that didn't actually exist yet. 
Now, if you're someone who shops online, that might start to make you a bit paranoid when it comes to buying something. Because it means that before you take the plunge and click the buy it now button, well, you need to be sure not only that the reviews are positive, but you also need to work out whether that review is the real deal or not. I mean, if the review is legitimate, then so probably is the product. But if the review is a fake, well, then again, so probably is the product. Now, I'm not mentioning that to you because I'm in the habit of giving out consumer advice, but because a similar principle lies behind Jesus' question to the religious leaders in Mark 11, I think. John the Baptist appears a couple of times during Mark's gospel, and we met him actually at the very beginning in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7, we read this. John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John himself was a prophet from God. That's what he held himself out to be. And his job as a prophet was to be the ultimate online reviewer, or rather, the ultimate previewer. His whole objective was to announce and to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, to verify that he was the real deal. He was God's coming king. So can you see that what you make of John is what you make of Jesus? If John is from God and his preview of Jesus is legitimate, if he's telling the truth, well, then so is the Jesus he's pointing to. But if John's a fake, well, then the whole thing comes into question. That's why Jesus asks the question he asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a roundabout way of highlighting exactly where his authority comes from, from the same place as John's. It's from God himself. But I wonder if you notice that it seems Jesus' audience weren't all that interested in getting an answer to the question at all. Read on with me, verse 31. They discussed Jesus' question with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Their reasoning goes something like this. On the one hand, we didn't exactly welcome John with open arms. So if we now turn around and say he was a real prophet from God... We're going to look like hypocrites. But on the other hand, well, John was so popular, so popular with the people. And if we say he wasn't from God, then, well, they're going to turn on us. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place, it seems. And yet of the factors they do consider, there's one that isn't on the radar at all. I wonder if you noticed it. No one seems all that interested in whether John actually was who he claimed to be or not. They discussed the personal implications of admitting John was from God, the political implications for that matter. But what really mattered was which answer is most convenient. The truth. Well, the truth doesn't really enter into things at all. 
Now, we can kind of set the religious leaders up in, in Mark and in all of the gospel accounts as being a little bit like pantomime baddies. So they seem to kind of disappear off into corners and, and kind of rub their hands together and plot things. And they're always trying to foil our hero, but they always seem to be one step behind him. And, and if anyone in the story, we are most like Jesus, or at least we're cheering him on. We're on the goodies side, aren't we? But you see, the truth is that by default, if we are like anyone in Mark chapter 11, we're most like the religious leaders. When I was at university, I can remember having really good discussions with one of my friends in halls about Jesus. And he was, he was really taken with the person of Jesus, found him to be compelling and engaging. And we kind of danced around the issue for, for quite a few months. He came to a few CU events and we chatted about Jesus a lot. Until we got to a point where I felt I had to just outright ask him why he was reluctant to, to make a decision about Jesus one way or t'other. And he said these words, I just don't think I can give control over my life to someone else. I just don't think I can give control over my life to someone else. And he's, he's yet to become a Christian for all that I keep praying for him. And I wonder if you can see that his reason for rejecting Jesus is a Mark chapter 11 reason for rejecting Jesus. It's not necessarily a truth issue, not necessarily about whether Jesus really was who he claimed to be or not. At its root is a control issue. Accepting that Jesus was the son of God, was God's king, and that his authority is legitimate. Well, it would mean that the religious leaders would have to submit to him. That was something they weren't prepared to do. Something my friend wasn't prepared to do. And perhaps something you're not yet prepared to do. Maybe your concern about the Christian faith isn't so much whether Jesus really was who he claimed to be. But it's that, that, that following him would mean yielding control of your life to someone else over your money. Over your time. Over your relationships over your body. And that isn't a prospect you're willing to consider. What gives him the right, after all? Now, if you can see any of that in yourself and in your own mindset towards Jesus, it is worth being honest about that rather than dressing it up as an intellectual problem with the Christian faith. See it for what it is. And if that does resonate with you at all in your own situation, let me encourage you, please, to pay attention to what comes next. Because if Jesus starts by responding to the scribe's defense in chapter 11, well, at the beginning of chapter 12, he turns the tables. We see that actually in chapter 12, verse 12. The scribes perceived that he had told the parable against them. Jesus makes a counterclaim, in effect. And he does that by means of a parable. Let's think about that parable a bit more closely together under our next heading. Living in what is God's and failing to give him what he's due, verses 1 to 8. Now, the parable in, in chapter 12 was about a man who owns a vineyard. 
Uh, he carries out some renovation work, fencing and digging and building before renting it out to tenants. Harvest time comes and the owner sends one of his servants to collect what he is due as rent in effect. But rather than giving him what he's come for, the tenants beat the owner's servant and send him away. The same thing happens to the next servant he sends, verse 4. And a succession of servants are sent after that, each of whom are either rejected or some even killed. By the end, the only person left to send is his son. Surely the tenants will respect my son, thinks the owner. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And that's just what they do. They kill his son. Now that might feel like a bit of a digression from the exchange at chapter 11. But Jesus is actually tackling the same idea only he's going on the front foot to do so. How do we know that? Well, it might not be immediately obvious to all of us, but the image of a vineyard would have been a familiar one to the scribes and rulers. Because in the book of Isaiah, a prophecy written 700 years or so before Jesus' birth, Isaiah wrote about a vineyard. A vineyard which was prepared, Isaiah chapter 5, by its owner, digging and building and preparing. And the language used in Isaiah is exactly the same as is used in Mark chapter 12. Now, what is the vineyard image all about in Isaiah? Well, Isaiah explains Isaiah 5 verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard is a picture of God's people. The whole parable, in fact, is a picture of God's dealings with Israel throughout history. And in particular, of the relationship between God, the owner of the vineyard, the one who planted and prepared it, and the religious leaders, the tenants entrusted with its stewardship. God set leaders over his people to look after them, to care for them as tenants. But they rejected him. He sent servants, prophets, to call them back to himself, to give him his due. But they even rejected the prophets. And whilst all of that was bad enough, well, the most shocking part of the story, as Jesus tells it at least, is still to happen. Because in case it isn't clear yet, well, the owner's son is Jesus himself. And instead of honoring him and listening to him, and giving him his due, will the tenants of the vineyard, the religious leaders, seek to destroy him and to take the vineyard for themselves? Oh, they want the vineyard all right. They, they want religion. They want control over God's people, but they want it without God. And I wonder if you can see how that sheds light on the question that hangs over this whole passage. The question that's being batted around is, by what authority can you judge us, Jesus? By what authority can you take away our temple? And the answer that comes thundering back in chapter 12 is the temple never belonged to you. 
It was the owner who planted it. He isn't taking what belongs to you. You're withholding what belongs to him. This is his vineyard. And you haven't been paying your rent. If anything, as you read through the parable, the real question is, why on earth didn't the owner get rid of them before? They're dreadful tenants. Now, the parable applied in a very direct, a painfully direct way to the leaders of God's people, Israel. And yet there are parallels, really striking parallels between the situation in Mark 11 and the situation we all find ourselves in. Because there is a sense in which we are all like the tenants in Mark chapter 12. I prayed as we began our time together about God speaking the heavens into existence. God created the world we live in, the entire cosmos in fact, with care and with beauty and with order. And there is nothing on the face of the planet that does not belong to him, including us. And yet despite that, we reject him. We ignore him. We behave as though things would be better if he weren't in the picture at all. In other words, we live in a world that belongs to God and yet refuse to give him his due. And time and again, the the, the owner has sent messengers, patiently sent prophets to call us to himself that we would give him what is due and still we've rejected them. And last of all, as he sent his son into the world to call us back to him, we reject him too. There is much of our situation mirrored in that of the scribes and the religious leaders. And just as our behavior can look like theirs too, well, so are the consequences of living in what is God's and refusing to give him his due. And we see that under our final heading. His judgment is just and his delay is gracious. Now, some of you might have been wondering what happened in the court hearing I mentioned earlier on with the the 30 or so people using the free man of the land defense. The the group's dream outcome, I guess, was that the judge would recognize their argument and that they're free to live on the land for as as long as they liked and they would maybe dance out of the courtroom arm in arm uh, celebrating. But it might not surprise you to hear that that wasn't how things went. Despite their best efforts, their arguments, such as they were, fell on deaf ears. The Lord Ordinary, the judge in the case, found in favour of the landowner and ruled that the group had to leave the site. And they continued to argue that they weren't bound by that ruling, of course. But it didn't make much of a difference as things transpired. The judgment had been reached. And it had been reached by a court which objectively did have authority to reach that kind of judgment. It was well within its rights to do so. And that ruling gave the landowner the right, the legitimate right, to take action, to do something about it, to eject them from the property if he should so choose. And Jesus actually sets out a similar outcome for the religious leaders in verses 9 to 12. By rejecting his servants, by denying and even killing his son, well, they thought that the matter was done. 
the owner would leave them alone. The vineyard was theirs now. They could carry on as, as leaders over God's people and wouldn't have the inconvenience of having God to worry about. But instead what happens, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Deny his authority all you like. You can stick your fingers in your ears as he speaks if you're so minded. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is from God, that he is God himself, that he has authority to judge. And as we saw last week, that one day he will. Now that ought to have been a sobering prospect for Jesus' first audience, the scribes. And I do just wonder if it might be the same for us too. I asked uh, earlier on the question that our culture asks, which isn't so much what gives Jesus the right to judge the temple, but, but what gives Jesus the right to judge anyone? Well, you see, this is his world. Everything in it belongs to him, including us. And he calls us to give him his due, to submit our lives to him. And so we might be tempted to think that to ignore God is to take a neutral position in things. But can you see it isn't at all? Any more than a tenant refusing to pay their rent is neutral. And though we might think that we could get away with living in his world without giving him his due, well, again, we can't. It's the spiritual equivalent of standing in a courtroom with our fingers in our ears. It is naive to think that the judge will leave it at that and give up. He has promised that he he will one day return and he will do what is right. He will judge those who have rejected him and his good and right rule over our world. Now, all of that sounds pretty bleak. And in one sense, it really, really is very bleak indeed. But there is also a shaft of light. Verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, in one sense, Jesus is pronouncing God's judgment on people who oppose him and reject him and ignore him. But in another sense, he's signaling grace. That he wouldn't trust the care of his vineyard, the leadership of his people, not to the scribes and religious leaders who'd hated him, but in the first instance, to his apostles. That's what happens as Mark's gospel unfolds. They are the stewards of his people. And that matters for us. Why? Well, because it's their words, it's their warning inspired by the Holy Spirit of God himself that we're listening together now in the Bible. And it's their warning, in fact, it's his warning, but it's also an invitation. That's the reason for the quote as we read on to verse 10. It's a quote from a psalm, one of the songs in the Old Testament. Just read with me, Mark 12, verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, the owner's son, would be rejected by some. Indeed, a while after this short exchange in the temple, would submit himself to humiliation 
and to death on a cross. And yet that rejected stone would become the keystone, the cornerstone in all that God was doing in the world as he rose again three days later. Let me perhaps take us back to the courtroom to help explain it in a different way. The judge, who should rightly condemn us, offered to serve the sentence for our crime in our place. Why? Well, so that we could go free. Now, you might be doubting still whether any of that's really true. I mean, if the God of the universe wanted to judge me, why hasn't he done it already? Why haven't I been smitten down by him? Well, actually, the Bible tells us that that delay, the fact that he's yet to return in judgment, is itself a sign of kindness and patience. That he's giving time. He's giving opportunity to turn and to trust him. And so listen to me, please, this morning. Can I encourage you, exhort you to take that opportunity? Because although Jesus is the rightful ruler over your life, although he's the rightful judge over everyone who's walked the planet uh, today, he isn't cruel. He isn't malevolent. He loves you. And so yielding your life to him, taking up a cross to follow him even, though often difficult, is good because he is good and because he died for your eternal good. And so if you've never done that before, let me please encourage you to do so now, to give him his due, which is your very life. Commit yourself to following him and to trusting in him. If you would like to do that this morning, please do come and speak to me after the service. I'd be delighted to speak and to pray or to answer any questions you might have if I'm able to do that. And whilst there is a clear line of application to anyone who has yet to submit themselves to Jesus' rule, there is an application too before we close to those of us who have, but only partly. Perhaps you're a Christian and you're happy to submit to God in some areas of your life. But for you, well, money is a bit of an issue. You're just not willing to give all that's yours to him. To see all that you have as being rightly his. Because what gives him the right to tell me what to do with it or to judge me for how I use it? I earned it, after all. Well, I hope you can see after what we've been thinking about this morning that his authority is literally God-given. Not only that, that all of your stuff is actually his anyway. His authority over each one of us and all of our lives is absolutely legitimate. Now, submitting to him as your king means recognizing that. That you're his now. And that means all of you, money and job and family and sex and everything, the whole caboodle. Now, that can be hard. Even as we think through the various ways this cashes out for each one of us. Well, it can feel impossible. And that's because, as we've seen each week over the past two or three weeks, well, it is impossible, humanly speaking, to give everything we have to God, but not with God. 
for all things we read in Mark's gospel are possible with God. And so let's ask him. Ask him for the help that we so desperately need to submit our lives, our very selves to him. Our ruling and reigning king. Let me lead us as we do that together now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we come before you and acknowledge that every one of us have lived in this, your world, and have not given you your due. We have denied your authority over us and have made ourselves kings and queens over our own lives. And we ask that you would please forgive us. We are owed nothing but your rejection of us. And yet we praise you this morning that as well as sending those servants, the prophets, to warn us, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, who died the death that we should have died so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into your eternal kingdom into relationship, right relationship with you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness and your kindness to us at the cross. And we praise you for your grace in warning us and in exhorting us and in encouraging us to put our trust in you. And so we ask this morning you would please enable each one of us to do just that. To submit ourselves to your rule. Knowing that as we follow a cross-bound king... That as we die with him, so too shall we rise with him. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory. And do so in the name of that King, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.